Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. And I'm Grace Wan. This is your weekly conversation about where we live. And what matters most. We are live. And we are local. Every Monday night. Right here on KALW San Francisco Bay Area. Welcome to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. My co-host Grace Wan is off for the night, but we are happy to have Fred Pitts back with us. You'll hear him later in the show interviewing Larry Zartarian about the Pacific Coast Pinball Museum. We'll also be talking with John Martini and Carly Nugent about San Francisco's number one tourist attraction, the notorious Alcatraz Prison. But first... In December 2021, Mayor London Breed released San Francisco's Climate Action Plan, which would enable the city to achieve net zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2040. According to a recent report from Berkeley Law School, it will take at least $22 billion to achieve the plan's investments in transit, buildings, parks, and more. Now, ambitious targets are meaningless, of course, without the strategies and funding to meet them. So how can city leaders make these needed investments? Is the plan in jeopardy now that the city has gone from a budget surplus to a budget deficit? And is there the political will to get this done? Here to help us understand the outlook for San Francisco's climate action plan is Jessica Wolfram, climate reporter for the San Francisco Examiner. Welcome to State of the Bay, Jessica. Thank you so much for having me. So, Jessica, give us some context here. Who came up with this climate action plan and what are some of the highlights of it? Absolutely. Well, I think it's probably important to establish sort of right off the bat what a climate action plan is. And so very simply, a climate action plan is like a roadmap that outlines specific goals or actions that a city or a business will take to reduce its greenhouse gas emissions. And as you mentioned, uh, San Francisco updated its climate action plan in 2021, and it lays out several strategies to get the city to net zero emissions by 2040. So that includes things like decarbonizing our building and transportation, which make up the lion's share of our emissions, but also looking at things like land use um, and how to improve our ecosystems and natural habitats to sequester carbon. Um, The Department of Environment here in San Francisco really led the development of that plan, but because climate change is poised to really touch every part of our lives, it required participation across agencies and departments. So that means everyone from the Department of Public Health to uh, SFMTA, to the SFPUC and the port and the planning department. You know, it's a really huge undertaking. I think the entire document is over 300 pages. Um, So it was a long time coming and it really sets the stage for how San Francisco is going to respond to a warming world. Mm -hmm. And how unique is California's approach here? Other cities are doing climate action plans. Is there something noteworthy about San Francisco's process in putting this plan that, that you've observed? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. Um, San Francisco faces a unique set of challenges as it relates to climate change. You know, we're very much on the front lines of a number of compounding impacts. So we're a city that's surrounded by water. Uh, We're vulnerable to to sea level rise, um, but now we're also regularly seeing smoke from wildfires and intensifying storms, including the barrage of wet weather that we uh, had earlier this month. So I think it's clear that a more 
more ambitious action plan was really needed to protect both residents and infrastructure against some of these effects. But not everyone in San Francisco is impacted in the same way. And so I know that the people who put together this plan really focused on centering equity in all of these initiatives. And that plan makes clear that, you know, climate action and environmental justice are very much interwoven issues. Mm -hmm. Well, let's talk about some of the big causes, big sources of carbon emissions in the city. And you mentioned the two big ones. It seems like it's really about buildings and transportation. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Buildings uh, account for 41% of our carbon emissions citywide and transportation is 47%. So that's a huge chunk, nearly half of our emissions um, with landfills and uh, electricity sort of coming in in the rear. But it's really built when you're talking about decarbonizing San Francisco, you know, you're really focusing on these two main sectors. Mm-hmm. And what are the specific causes of emissions from both of those? I mean, I think we can imagine with transportation, it's it's tailpipes. But wondering if you can just dig in a little bit on both buildings and transportation, what the actual activities are that's that's generating these emissions, and and what some of the strategies might be to address them. Yeah, you know, until I became a climate reporter, I flipped on my lights at home, I turned on the heater in my house without giving much thought to, you know, how that energy was being generated, where it was coming from. And, you know, it turns out buildings are a big source of emissions because, you know, we all are, uh, you know, in our office buildings during the day, uh, many of those lights and heating systems and cooling systems are turned on pretty much 24-7. Um, and at home at night, you know, we crank up the heater, especially in the winter months. Um, not many of us are lucky to have air conditioning here in San Francisco, but, um, you know, that's certainly a, another source of, of energy and all of the other things you do in your home, whether that's washing your dishes or your laundry, all of that requires um, natural gas or electricity to, to really do. So um, I think buildings, that's why buildings are such a big chunk. Um, And then transportation, obviously, uh, if you are not driving an electric vehicle, uh, it not only costs emissions to make your car, but every time you get in and switch on that ignition, um, uh, you are emitting uh, (laughs) greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Mm -hmm. And so what is the plan proposing? What changes can we make, maybe just starting with buildings? How do we reduce those emissions from all the appliances that that are burning natural gas in particular? Yeah, well, the the Climate Action Plan has um, really ambitious targets. And so for buildings in particular, uh, it has already, uh, San Francisco already passed an ordinance to eliminate fossil fuels, so natural gas, um, in all new construction. And that started this month. So if you move into a building that was built in San Francisco after January 2023, all of your appliances, your stove, um, your washing machine, your water heater, everything will be electric. Um, but and it's it's a little bit easier when you have a blank slate, perhaps. Uh, but when you think about um, the city of San Francisco, uh, its existing building stock poses a pretty you know large chunk of the city, and the the plan is to electrify all existing buildings by 2040. So that's a really tall order in a really short amount of time. Mm-hmm. And then I assume on the transportation side, is it really just about building out more transit networks? Yeah, so the city wants to shift 80% of trips taken to low carbon mode. So that's walking, biking, using public transit, 
and shared electric vehicles by 2030 uh, with the emphasis on shared. You know, the city really wants to reduce private vehicle use and then electrify 100% of the remaining private vehicles by 2040. Um, but that's going to require the, what's called mode shift. And so it's really uh, rethinking the way we get around San Francisco. And that is going to, you know, require all of us to, uh, you know, change the way we we get around the city um, if we're used to jumping in our car and just, you know, heading to the grocery store or, or, or other places. And Jessica, you mentioned also the impacts of climate change are part of this, being, cities being surrounded by water on all sides. What are some of the quick highlights on adaptation to the changing climate? Yeah, well, I think that's really, you know, embedded in, into the climate action plan as well. We're, we're seeing, you know, different ways to make our buildings and our, our transportation more resilient. But we also need to protect from things like rising seas. You know, we had the king tides this week. I know the port is rolling out um, a new uh, seawall program. Um, so there's a, there's a number of resilience uh, projects going on around the Bay Area, not just in San Francisco, including, you know, um, restoring wetlands um, to sort of buffer against these rising tides. Um, and during the summer, the city rolled out these cooling centers for folks who didn't have uh, access to uh, you know, air conditioning at home. And so there, there's a number of different uh, ways that, you know, the city is thinking about resilience. And um, certainly it's not, you know, all just in one category or bucket. Mm -hmm. Well, and so all of these activities, all these investments are going to cost money. And this past October, Mayor London Breed pledged a mere $2 million towards this climate action plan, but it's estimated to cost a total of $22 billion billion with a B dollars. And I should also disclose that it was my colleagues at Berkeley Law's Center for Law, Energy and Environment that released a report. Uh, I was not an author on that report, but they cited this $22 billion need. And so we have a, a huge shortfall. If we just have $2 million, that's really just kind of a drop in the bucket at, at this point. So are, are people feeling optimistic that the city is actually going to be hitting these targets, giving the funding shortfall? And, and what's the plan to try to scrounge up those $22 billion? Well, I think that's probably the multi-billion dollar question, but, you know, I think with any city budget, prioritizing where money goes amid multiple uh, different needs is always a challenge, and that's especially true when the economy slows down or there's uncertainty in the market. Um, in December, you know, the city did announce it's projecting a budget shortfall due to slowed revenue growth and a loss of federal COVID-19 funding. So Mayor Breed has asked each department, including the Department of Environment, to expect uh, a 5% de decrease this year and then an additional 3% the following year from the general fund. So that's nearly an 8% decrease over the next two years. And even when we were enjoying a budget surplus over the summer, climate funding was a real hard fought battle. As you mentioned, um, during the budget cycle last June, Mayor Breed did not include funding for the Department of Environment in her original budget proposal. And the Department of Environment is tasked with rolling out the climate action plan. Um, so after, you know, long weeks in advocacy work, environmental groups, pressure the Board of Supervisors to add back that $2.6 million that you mentioned. 
Um, so I think it really remains to be seen, you know, how we're going to, to get this funding, but $22 billion is going to cost a lot of money, uh, or is a lot of money, and, um, you know, these, bi these billions of dollars would have to be spread over many decades, but I still think, you know, it, it, it is a, a lot of funding to, to be found, and I think the city needs to get creative um, with, with how they're going to secure that funding. Mm -hmm. Well, if you're just joining us on State of the Bay, we're talking to Jessica Wolfram climate reporter for the San Francisco Examiner about San Francisco's climate action plan. So Jessica, what are some of the mechanisms that might be put in place to raise some of the money? Are people talking about taxes, bonds? What What are some of the, the mix of approaches that might help us get to that $22 billion? Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, many folks uh, are still trying to figure that out, but the UC Berkeley report lays out this sort of all hands on deck approach. So not only do we need to be allocating general fund dollars and city dollars, but also raising bonds, using these sales tax, leveraging um, funds from the state and federal levels, which has se we've seen historic amounts of funding go towards climate uh, this last year. And so this is not going to be a one and done. I think this is going to need to take sustained funding through shortfalls and surpluses. But I think a few of the things that stood out to me in terms of um, funding mechanisms were increasing parcel taxes on square footage, um, implementing congestion pricing, uh, taxing uh, large commercial buildings, uh, and, you know, some of these other uh, bond measures and uh, revenue raising measures that would be put directly towards climate action. Mm -hmm. And do we have a sense as to how much of the money has to come from public sources like the taxes and congestion fees that you were talking about versus where this might leverage private investment, you know, in things like all new electric buildings, um, you know, maybe even some of these private mobility, e-scooter, you know, e-bike companies? Yeah, um, I, I don't know exactly how um, all, all of that will, will pencil out ultimately, but one of the things that I found interesting in the report is that it brought up this idea of a green bank, which is basically a financial institution that can leverage public funding to attract private capital for clean energy projects. And in the case proposed by UC Berkeley, it would set up the bank more as a nonprofit um, but I think, you know, the, the, the need for private sector funding um, was really laid bare um, in this report. And, and I think the Green Bank would also work to leverage funding from the Inflation Reduction Act, which has a section for decarbonization financing programs. And so I think, you know, when you look at it sort of at the 30,000 foot view level, it really is clear that it's going to take everyone and everything um, all the time. Yeah. Well, do you think that the San Francisco voters might be more amenable to some of these ideas and others? I mean, do you have any sense that there's immediate investments and maybe immediate revenue measures that might be political winners in the short run here? That's a really interesting question. I think um, sort of to the contrary, we saw uh, on the statewide level how tricky it really can be to um, get people on board in terms of funding climate action. You know, I'm thinking about Proposition 30, this measure that would tax the wealthy to fund electric vehicle rebates and fight wildfires. That measure was rejected by California voters during the midterms, although I will say it was largely supported by San Franciscans. Um, so read into that what you want. But, um, you know, the measure would have imposed a 1.75% income tax increase 
on those who uh, made over $2 million. And that would go to reducing air pollution and investing in electric vehicles. But it was quickly sort of um, campaigned against by, by the governor and uh, many others who called it a tax grab. Uh, and and what the politics of this aside, I think it just really speaks to the question of, you know, who should pay for the effects and the impacts of a warming planet. And I don't think we've fully answered that yet. Mm-hmm. Well, and you, you mentioned Prop 30, but of course, more locally, San Franciscans did vote to keep cars off of JFK Drive and the Great Highway. So do you think that there might be support for these kinds of measures if they could be bundled with other you know, quality of life improvements? So if people see not just a climate benefit, but a benefit to mobility or their, their quality of life in terms of getting around the city? Yeah, I, I, I'm not, I don't have a crystal ball, so I, I don't know if I can, can answer that. But I think, you know, what JFK um, really showed us too was that even, even a battle to keep a, a street open in the park was hotly contested. Um, and while San Francisco builds itself as a green city and, and a progressive city on climate action, I think there are serious considerations when you think about mobility and who has access. And I think JFK really played those battles out. Um, but, you know, the other side of that coin is that I think generally when you talk to folks here, there is this sense of urgency around climate issues and, and a sort of sense of wanting to do something about it. Um, and so how you write that into legislation is a little bit beyond me, but um, I think there's definitely an appetite for that in the city. And so, Jessica, what are the next steps on the climate action plan? Are there upcoming decisions, anything that we should be on the lookout for in terms of implementation? Yeah, definitely. Well, um, you know, I think some of this work is, is really still uh, undergoing, you know, the, the $2.6 million dollars. Um, you know, the Department of Environment is really trying to ramp up staffing. And again, this is really because, uh, I mean, the, the economic climate may, uh, may change this, but, you know, we're starting to see how the city is rolling out uh, prioritization of climate action. So um, in October, Mayor Breed announced $2 million in grants uh, with half a million dollars going towards building electrification projects. Um, and, you know, in November, the uh, Energy Commission awarded the city over $2 million to help ramp up electric vehicle charging infrastructure, which we rapidly need to build out if we're going to keep p- pace with demand for electric vehicles. I know in my neighborhood, folks are already fighting over the, the two chargers. So, um, <laughs> so that's <laughs> coming. Um, and I know the folks at the Department of Environment, um, SFMTA and, and beyond are all uh, focused on this, especially as the recent storms really, I think, brought to bear uh, that we do need to be prepared for these worsening impacts. Absolutely. Well, we're going to need money to help resolve those disputes with your neighbors fighting over EV charging spots and a, and a whole lot more. <laughs> but we're going to we're going to have to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us, Jessica Wolfram, climate reporter at the San Francisco Examiner. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. And coming up next on State of the Bay, we'll talk to historian John Martini and park ranger Carly Nugent about the infamous prison in the Bay, Alcatraz. That's right after the break.
Welcome back to State of the Bay. I'm Ethan Elkind. We want you to be a part of this next conversation. We're going to be talking about Alcatraz. Have you visited the island? You ever wonder who lived there or what it took to escape? You can give us a call. We're at 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also send us a message on Twitter at State of Bay. So the island of Alcatraz, it's a quick ferry ride across the bay. It was once a maximum security prison with the likes of Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, and Bumpy Johnson behind its bars. And it is now San Francisco's number one tourist attraction. But what was the island like before it held the convicted? Who else was locked up there? And who braved the icy, shark-infested waters to try to escape? Here to answer these questions and more, we're very pleased to welcome John Martini, a renowned Alcatraz expert, veteran national park ranger, and the author of two books about the rock. Welcome, John. No, thank you for having me. And I'd also like to welcome current Alcatraz park ranger, Carly Nugent. She interprets the park and its history for visitors. So welcome, Carly. It's an honor to be here. Thank you for having me as well. Well, it's an honor to have you both on the show talking about this number one tourist attraction here. And John, let me start with you. Alcatraz wasn't always a maximum security prison, of course. So what was the island like before it housed the country's top convicted criminals? Um, well, it's literally a 22-acre piece of rock in the middle of San Francisco Bay. And as far as we know, up until the uh, United States government took it over uh, for a lighthouse and for a fort to defend the harbor uh, during the California gold rush. Um, it had no uh, colonial history. It had no uh, prehistory. It seems to have started um, as a U.S. government reservation. I mentioned it was lighthouse first on the West Coast. It was a very large uh, fort, something similar to the Rock of Gibraltar um, during the uh, gold rush and the Civil War. Never fired a shot in anger. And it turned out to be, uh, for the United States Army, a great place for locking up military prisoners. In fact, I... by the dawn of the 20th century, it was already called The Rock, and it was known throughout the United States Army as a terrible place where you would uh, carry out long-term sentences if you were a military convict. In fact, almost all the buildings on the island uh, were built by military convicts. Hmm. Well, it's a very windswept spot for sure. So it sounds like, based on what you're saying, just going back to the prehistory, that there were no Native Americans who actually lived there full time. How did they use the island, if at all, then? We don't have any hard physical evidence. There are, um, uh, we can suppose that being an island in the middle of the bay covered with seabirds, it was probably a great place to stop and collect eggs, maybe uh, net seabirds. But in terms of actually living on the island, there's no soil, there was no uh, vegetation, there was no fresh water, and there's a, a lore that it was considered to be a dwelling place for evil spirits. Um, I think more likely it just it was a place to be avoided because there's no landing place there. It's uh, sheer rocks washed by waves, pretty hard to get on, pretty hard to get off. I mean, why go to Alcatraz when you've got Angel Island and Yerba Buena Island, which were much nicer nearby? Well, the lore was that there were evil spirits. I think there definitely must be now after uh, housing a prison for for so many years. And can you explain why Alcatraz is so famous? Why is it known all over the world? You know, compared to other prisons that we've had and other other facilities like that around the around the United States, at least. 
I chalk it up to a policy that started when the uh, Department of Justice in the 1930s decided they needed a super maximum security prison to hold the likes of the uh, Al Capones and Machine Gun Kellys and the public enemy number ones that the Department of Justice had been really trying to round up and lock away. They wanted a place to put these people, as uh, one author wrote, uh, bury them alive in plain view. And uh, Alcatraz, with its uh, aging military prison buildings on it, was becoming surplus to the army. It was the perfect place. Early on, the there were uh, press tours of Alcatraz and descriptions like uh, uh, America's Devil's Island started to pop up in the press. There was a newsreel coverage well before Capone ever got on the island. It was a media prison. And once the first convicts arrived in the summer of 34, uh, a lid of secrecy kind of clamped down on the island. And uh, the lore started to crop up. Hollywood jumped in. Uh, cheap penny dreadful novels uh, written about the island. And there were no press tours at this time. Uh, no Hollywood people were let on the island, of course. But movie after movie was made uh, about Alcatraz. And its lore grew. Um, after the island shut down, it became a National Park Service unit in 1972. And that's when movies were allowed <laughs> to be made on the island. And boy, were they. Uh, the Rock, uh, Escape from Alcatraz, innumerable documentaries. When we opened the island for tours in 1973, we thought that the public would be satiated with their interest in Alcatraz within a couple of years. And that, that didn't really happen. Uh, the interest keeps growing. The movies keep uh, rolling. And the uh, island is uh, part of American lore. I threw this one out. Has anyone ever heard of a movie called Escape from San Quentin? Um, and of course not. There was such a movie in the 1950s, but it didn't go anywhere. Throw yeah, Alcatraz the same in. ring. Yeah, it's, you got you got an audience. Yeah, well, that's really fascinating how Hollywood really projected uh, the the Alcatraz image all over the world. But Carly, let me ask you: for the prisoners there, what was it like being held at Alcatraz? Can you talk about daily life out there on the rock? Yes, sir. Absolutely. Um, and as John has said, it, it kind of went through two phases as a prison. You had the military prison era from 1912 to 1933, and the Federal Bureau of Prisons took it over in 1934. There was a little bit of difference in how each prison operated in terms of how they structured the incarcerated men's daily lives. It was a little looser during the military prison era. In fact, there was a rule that they really didn't need to be in their cells until it was time to go to bed at night versus when the Federal Bureau of Prisons takes over and they have this reputation that they're trying to uphold. We're the first max security prison. A portion of that max security comes from every single moment of the incarcerated men's day was laid out and scheduled. They had a daily routine that they followed to a T every single day from the morning wake up bell at around 630 to the numerous counts throughout the day to make sure every incarcerated man was present and accounted for. You had meal schedules. They had their shifts at their labor jobs. Every single part of their day was planned out. And they did have times where they had a little bit more freedom in what they could do. For example, they had a music hour where they were allowed to play in the prison band or in their cells. Some of them found solace in painting. A lot of men who were literate enjoyed reading as a way to mentally escape from their 
honestly, there are horrible things that they were going through. So Mm -hmm. in terms of a daily life, it was very well scheduled out. Mm -hmm. And Carly, did they have opportunities for reform, rehabilitation type classes or, or counseling? Oh, I'm sorry. You broke up just a little bit. Can you repeat, please? Sure. Yeah. Carly, I was asking if they had opportunities for courses or counseling on reform or rehabilitation, opportunities to improve themselves if they could get out. A lot of the stories that I've read in terms of uh, redefining their lives because of their time on the rock, there are quite a few redemption stories. And some of them found redemption through the jobs that they were doing. Like some of my favorite cases of those would be Elliot Mishner, who found himself in the prison system because he was counterfeiting $20 bills. One day he's out picking up handballs that had flown out of the rec yard, as was his duty, and he found a set of guard's keys. He returns these to the guard, and the guard rewards him by letting him pick something that he wants to do for recreational activity. He chooses to garden, and he creates a lot of what we now have historic gardens on the west side of the island. They're thanks to him. So a lot of times when they found redemption or reform, it was from the opportunities they had to work on the island. And there's another great story. If we have time, I'll share that with you in a little bit as well. Sure. No, we'd love to hear it if you wanted to share it now. Ah, so there was a man. His name was Jim Quillen. He has quite a legacy on Alcatraz Island. He's one of my favorite stories to share with visitors who come to the island every single day. So Jim Quillen, he had a very tough life. His young life was marred with just so many awful memories. In fact, he recounts in his novel, he really only has three memories of his mother. Two of them are very violent. One of them, she was trying to actually cause harm to him, his father, and his sister. And the last was her chasing after him in the street as his father was removing him from her forever. So it was a very traumatic time. He had struggled growing up. He'd had no true guidance. He falls into a life of crime. And because he falls into this life of crime, he does end up on Alcatraz Island at a very young age, 20 or 21 years old. He's in this desolate, isolated, horrific prison. And he starts to adopt this mindset of, I've thrown my life away. I'll never get out of here. What do I have to live for at this point? And it's through his years on the prison that he does attempt to escape a few times. He's never successful, but then he is involved in what we call the Battle of 1946. It was the bloodiest event that took place on Alcatraz Island throughout history, a riot that was incited by three men who were incarcerated in the prison. They actually managed to take over the cell house, and there's so much misinformation that spreads about what's happening in this battle that the Coast Guard responds, the Navy responds, the Marines respond, all of the local police forces in the surrounding communities are trying to take back this cell house. And Jim Quillen recalls being in his cell in the D block with friends he had made. They took mattresses and they were holding these mattresses against the bars, trying to stop the bullets that were flying over their heads that were being fired through the D-block walls. At one point, the pipes burst, their cells are flooded. They spend two miserable days cold and fearing for their lives. And once the riot is settled, once the three perpetrators are gunned down, unfortunately, Jim Quillen comes out of this with, well, I survived this. There has to be some reason I'm here. And a lot of that mindset comes from a friendship he builds 
with the prison's chaplain at that time. He applies to work a new job in the prison hospital. He falls in love with the study of medicine and in particular x-ray technology. And he hones this craft. He becomes an expert x-ray technician through his time on the rock. And when he is eventually released from the prison system over a decade later, he goes on to have a successful career in that line of work. He marries, he has a daughter, he has a very happy life after his time on Alcatraz Island. And he brought those experiences and his stories back to the island with him long after his time had been served. Today, our visitors still get to learn about his legacy. He is one of the narrators featured on the Cell House audio tour. His wow, legacy is, a, is just one that's such a happy story. Yeah, it's a end. really surprising story of redemption because, you know, you mostly hear about some of the other famous prisoners who were in prison there, the Birdman of Alcatraz, Machine Gun Kelly, Al Capone, as I mentioned. So it's uh, really wonderful to hear at least one very positive story of redemption. And if you're just tuning in, this is State of the Bay on local public radio, 91.7 KALW, San Francisco Bay Area. I'm Ethan Elkind, and we're discussing the notorious Alcatraz prison with guests John Martini and Carly Nugent, Carly being a current park ranger on Alcatraz. We want to ask you if you have memories from a visit to Alcatraz that you want to share, or if you have questions about some of the different characters who live there. Or do you remember when Alcatraz closed? We'd love to hear from you. You can join us by calling 866-798-TALK. That's 866-798-8255. You can also email us at stateofthebay at kalw.org. Or you can find us on Twitter. We're at State of Bay. Well, John, let me ask you. Alcatraz had a a nice view, of course, as we talked Mm -hmm. about right there in the middle of the bay. It's three square meals a day, but Obviously, not everyone wanted to stay there, and there have been some pretty famous escape attempts. And I'm wondering if you can tell us specifically about the notorious 1962 escape attempt. Yeah, it's probably the one that made Alcatraz infamous. Um, as I said, it was it was well known through the media, and it was uh, getting old, and they were thinking of closing it down. And uh, three men in June 1962 pulled out what was considered to be the impossible. They not only escaped from Alcatraz, they escaped from inside their cells, inside their locked cells, got out of the cell house. They had a nine-hour head start before they were missed. How'd they do it? Um, The movie Escape from Alcatraz shows the technology pretty accurately. Essentially, they uh, figured out they could dig their way through the concrete walls in the backs of their cells. And in the back of every cell, there was a, a crawl space, utility corridor. The Kildy corridor led to the roof with air vents, and uh, they figured get to the air vents, saw the bars out onto the roof, get to the water. Um, really simplifying a whole lot of planning. It must have taken better part of a year to pull it off. The way they did it, though, it stunned everybody. And the reason they had such a head start was each man constructed a dummy head of himself made out of concrete and plaster and painted uh, with actually human hair from the barbershop so that when the guards passed, uh, did a head count in the middle of the night in a dark cell, it looked like a man sleeping. And uh, it wasn't just the one night on June 11th when they uh, put the dummy heads in. They had been doing this for months, giving them time to work in the utility corridor, climb up cut away the bars, and to make escape equipment. They stole dozens of rubber raincoats, which they recut into 
uh, a life raft into uh, inflatable life vests. Um, they got into the water on the night of June 11th. They were found missing June 12th. They were never seen again. Um, as as uh, one historian said, they uh, escaped from Alcatraz and they entered American mythology. Hmm. And the debate goes on. Did they make it? Did they not? And all of us, I'm sure Carly has her opinions. Uh, you know, <laughs> whether they're out there, you know, you know, sucking down um, uh, margaritas or if they're on the bottom of San Francisco Bay. Huh, interesting. It sounds a little bit like the Shawshank Redemption prison escape as well, chiseling through the uh, through the concrete. Well, you, Carly, you, let me ask you. You, you noticed oh, sorry, that that silly. I'd love to talk to um, the the uh, writers of Shawshank Redemption and see how much of Alcatraz uh, influenced them. Yeah, it was actually a Stephen King short story. So uh, maybe we'll love to get Stephen King on the program and or maybe he'll come to Alcatraz and talk about his memories. Carly, let me ask you about uh, escape attempts, because you talked to visitors about another one from uh, John Giles. Can you talk about what he did to try to get off the island? Yes, sir. There were 14 recorded escape attempts that we know of during the federal prison era. And I will say John Giles this is my favorite of the 14. So when John Giles arrived on Alcatraz Island, he was assigned a labor job like many of the other prisoners were, but his labor job was actually unique. He didn't work inside the cell house. He didn't work inside the workshop buildings where many of the other men did. He actually worked down at the dock. He was just a janitor. He was there to sweep up and keep the dock looking nice and neat. Well, it's important to understand that Alcatraz Island had a contract with local military bases. They would send their soldiers dirty laundry to the island to be cleaned daily by incarcerated men working in the laundry shops in the industries building. And that being said, John Giles, in all his time at the low security dock area, it gives him access to these incoming and outgoing shipments of military uniforms. So one day when he notices he's not being watched particularly closely, he sneaks on up to one of those shipments of laundry and he reaches inside of it. He starts pulling out individual pieces of military uniform, something small like a sock. He stashes it below the dock and he waits a few months to see if there will be any alarm bells. No one ever says a word. A few months later, he steals another piece, hides it, waits, nothing. Over the course of 10 entire years, Mr. Giles stole more than 40 pieces of military uniforms. And on July 31st, 1945, he'd finally put together a completed technical sergeant's uniform. So he's there and present for that hourly count. That guard turns his back. He's working on something else. And Mr. Giles slips away. He goes back down to his hiding spot one more time. And that's when he changes out of his prison overalls and he puts on that technical sergeant uniform. He scrambles back up to the dock and he simply walks onto that waiting boat. And eventually that boat leaves this island with him on it. And unfortunately for Mr. Giles, that's when things kind of start to go wrong He'd worked so hard on this plan, he thought that boat was going to end up in San Francisco. Unfortunately for him, it just ends up right next door on Angel Island. And that being said, after the boats would leave Alcatraz, the guards would perform routine counts again. And that next count points out, well, great, someone's missing. Who is it? The guard down at the dock very quickly identifies who's missing, and he knows where he is because he's watching that boat sail not too far away. 
So the guard alerts the warden. Several other guards all rush down to the dock. They hop on a speedboat. They're desperately racing. They're trying to beat the boat. Then Mr. Giles is on to Alcatraz or to Angel Island, excuse me. And when Mr. Giles' boat docks on Angel Island, he steps off thinking, I've done it. I've accomplished the impossible. I've escaped the inescapable prison. And it's as he's taking those first few steps into his newfound freedom that the warden and those guards greet him, they pick him up, they put him back on their boat, and they bring him right back to Alcatraz Island. And in the end, Mr. Giles ends up with two things from this escape attempt. Number one, he gets an additional five years to serve on Alcatraz for his sentence, three of which would be served in solitary confinement. And the other thing he gets is a brand new nickname. You see, after this day, all of the other prisoners started referring to him or calling him Sarge. So well, it's a clever him... story in how simple it was. <laughs> we got to give him points for ingenuity, but maybe not for understanding where the where the boat was going. But that's a really uh, fascinating and sadly comical story, uh, at least for Mr. Giles. Well, uh, I wanted to ask about what happened after they closed the penitentiary in 1963, because another chapter in the island's history really opens up at this point, which is the Indian occupation. And Carly, can you tell us a bit about what happened with that uh, Indian occupation in the, in the 1960s? I, I love sharing this story. And as an interpreter of history, I really try to go to the parks or the places I am fortunate enough to work in and find these lesser known stories and share them because they're often key events that no one realizes the magnitude of how important they were. And in regards to the Native American occupation of Alcatraz, it's it's a key event in the island's history that, again, so few people are familiar with. But the fact is, had it not happened, the cell house would have been long gone. The island would not have become a national park. It's such a vital story. And it begins in 1964, a year after the prison closed. There are members of the Sioux Nation here in the San Francisco area, and they actually make it out to Alcatraz Island. They claim the island and hold a protest for about four hours citing the 1868 Treaty of Fort Laramie. The government agreed to a passage in that treaty that basically translates to, if there's surplus unused government property, Native Americans have the right to reclaim it and the government would give it back to them. That occupation was short-lived. Like I said, it was about four hours long before it ended. And fast forward to 1969, we have a lot of young local Native American college students and activists in the Bay communities who had gone through the Termination Act from the 50s, the government trying to stomp out those last few reservations, trying not to acknowledge them. Well, that being said, at SF State, a young leader is emerging. Richard Oakes gathers and <clears throat> excuse me, rallies his fellow students, and they meet with students from UC Berkeley across the Bay. And they all make a plan that they are going to take Alcatraz Island under that same treaty. It was their right to reclaim the island. Now, there were several unsuccessful attempts in the beginning, but it all comes to a head on the, under the cover of darkness. On November 20th, 1969, about 90 people board boats 30 miles south of San Francisco, and they use that darkness to hide them. They make it onto the island, where they would remain for over 19 months. Now, a lot of things happen over the course of that 19 months. There are triumphs, 
this movement that they started received so much widespread public support. There were local restaurants shipping food out to them. Celebrities were donating supplies like boats to help them get to and from the island. That being said, in the course of 19 months, what starts with 90 balloons into about 600 living on the island at one point. And over 15,000 people would pass through that island in the course of that 19-month occupation. Now, along with the triumphs, there came tragedies. Like I said, there were deaths. On, there was a death on the island. Notably, Richard Oakes lost his young daughter during that occupation in a tragic fall. An unknown arsonist got onto the island and set fire to several of the historic buildings. So public support starts to wane as this goes on and on. And eventually people leave, go back to their lives. After 19 months, the government sends out a boat on June 11th, 1971, and removes the last occupiers. But that's not the end of the story. It was just the end of the physical occupation. The message still resonates throughout San Francisco and certainly on Alcatraz Island to this day. This occupation sparked numerous others. It ended the termination policy and it saw thousands of acres of land be returned to Native Americans across the country. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a really fascinating story and a critical moment, I know, for uh, the sort of modern Native American civil rights movement. Uh, we only have time for uh, really just one more question. We have a listener, Alex, from Mill Valley, who asks, writes, is it true that 100 kids grew up on Alcatraz? John, let me throw that one to you. Oh, yeah. At any given time, there were about 75 families living on the island, uh, 70, 100 kids, to, depending. And they uh, took the boat into school in San Francisco. They came back. They uh, prayed for days when the waves were high and the wind was too much so that the boat run would be called off. Um, the ones that we've uh, interviewed, uh, many of them are still with us. They're, they're my age now, you know, uh, young seniors. They remember it as a great place to grow up. Uh, one woman said, hey, we weren't afraid. Everybody's dad was a cop and you knew where the bad guys were locked up. It was like a small town. Well, and John, what else should people be looking for when they go visit Alcatraz? It's more than just a prison island. What do you recommend people try to check out while they're there? Oh, I, I've become hackneyed for saying that the island, it's it, its a layer cake of history. The And it literally exists. They're uh, below the prison buildings. There are the remains of uh, fortifications and residences that were built in the 1850s that were later incorporated as foundations for uh, the prison buildings and the powerhouse buildings and above them. And because the island is so small, one building was built on top of another on top of another. And uh, they do offer behind the scenes tours that take you down below the prison building where some rooms were used. Um, and the, this is the term that was used as uh, dungeons, underground mm. solitary confinement, uh, pitch black started during the army and it continued through the federal prison. There's graffiti carved into the walls from uh, people that were incarcerated down there. Um, mm. There's the gardens on Alcatraz that have been brought back to life by a huge army of dedicated volunteers and the nesting grounds, the second largest colony of Western gulls. Mm -hmm. Who would thought uh, it? Alcatraz yeah, is blooming. Yeah, the bird sanctuary gardens. Well, all that stuff sounds great. Carly, we're just about out of time, but what do you recommend for people who want to visit? What's the, the best way to schedule a trip over there? Uh, absolutely. You can visit the National Park Service website for Alcatraz for Golden Gate National Recreation Area. You can also book tickets exclusively 
through Alcatraz City Cruises. Great. Well, thank you so much. We're out of time, but I want to thank John Martini and Carly Nugent. Thank you so much for joining us on State of the Bay. Been a pleasure. Thank you. Great. And coming up after the break, we're going to hear from Fred Pitts as he interviews the president of the Pacific Pinball Museum, Larry Zartarian. So stay with us. Tucked away behind an unassuming storefront on Alameda's main drag is the Pacific Pinball Museum. Part museum, part arcade, this museum has been educating and entertaining people of all ages since 2004. And here to tell us about this really hidden East Bay gem is Larry Zartarian, pinball enthusiast, collector, and the president of the Pacific Pinball Museum. Larry, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure being here. So I went to the museum for the first time over the Christmas holidays this past Christmas. It had been on my hit list for years. And you wander through this place and there's pinball machine after pinball machine. There are pictures, there's history, there's science. Where did this museum come from? This was uh, the Pacific Pinball Museum was actually the brainchild of our founder and executive director, Michael Sheese, who founded the museum uh, back in 2002. In fact, we're just celebrating our 20th anniversary. And it had very humble beginnings. I think he and his brother uh, were creators and also uh, repair folks for exhibits at the Exploratorium. And Mike, he's very creative. So he thought that his idea would to take an existing pinball machine because he liked to play pinball and see if he could retheme it and put new artwork on the back glass and on the play field. But every time he got his hands on a game, he realized he just couldn't do it. He couldn't bring himself to alter someone else's artwork. Mm-hmm. And so he bought another game and then he bought another game, hoping that that would be the one that he could cannibalize and really alter, but he just couldn't bring himself to do it. So he ended up with about 20 to 35 machines. And he thought, you know, why don't I open a place to the public? And so everybody can enjoy and have fun with these. So he opened it on uh, initially Friday nights only, and you had to know the secret handshake. And secret it, handshake. It was about a <laughs> 300 square foot room and then it, now it's grown into 5,000 square feet with about 120 machines. So what makes this place, this museum different than a regular arcade? We really want to teach people and educate people and have fun. So it's educational and entertainment. But our mission statement is really to inspire an interest in art and science and history through pinball. And more importantly, to really preserve and promote this very unique part of America's culture, because no one else is is doing this. We actually have exhibits, like a clear pinball machine, where you can see the inner uh, workings of how they work, and it's it's fascinating. And we've also had exhibits at other museums, like um, the Faino Museum in Wolfsburg, Germany, uh, Chabot Space and Science over in Hayward, and also the Museum of American Heritage in Palo Alto. Uh, where we've had 30 to 40 machines and and science exhibits for about six months at a time. That seems to be why I think this place should be on every science teacher's uh, field trip list. You mentioned history. When you walk in, there are 
older pinball machines, if you want to call them that. And there's a picture on the wall of Fiorella LaGuardia. For those of you who don't know, he was the mayor of New York in the in the 40s. And there's a quote where he called pinball pushers slimy crews of tin horns, well-dressed and living in luxury <laughs> on penny thievery. <laughs> now, I know that pinball machines were associated with crime. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, the very first pinball machines were really no, they're very basic. They're just no more than a piece of wood with nails hammered into them in an array of semicircles or horseshoes. And you would pull a plunger and shoot a marble. The idea was to get the marble into these various horseshoes worth various amount of points. And then you would tell the drugstore clerk or the bartender, I got a certain number of points. Uh, you owe me a drink or maybe a nickel or whatever it was. And they didn't have legs. They didn't have electricity. And when the cops walked in, they could just grab the game and tuck it under the counter. So it was really more of a game of, of chance. And uh, you mentioned Fiorello LaGuardia. And he, he was mayor of New York from 1934 through 1945. Mm -hmm. And being Italian, uh, he was very sensitive about the reputation of Italians and the reputation of pinball machines and other illegal things like slot machines uh, associated with the mob. So he went out of his way to uh, prosecute and try to clean up the city, so to speak. So his first target way back in 34 was to go after Lucky Luciano, who was a big mob figure involved mm -hmm. in slot machines and prostitutions, et cetera. And so there are pictures of, of LaGuardia actually pushing over and smashing slot machines and pinball machines with a sledgehammer and then putting slot machines on a barge and dumping them in the Hudson River. And ironically, uh, LaGuardia died just about a month after the invention of the flipper in 1947. 47. And yeah. it was that invention that really changed pinball from a game of chance to one of skill. And what's interesting about that is that there's a 30-year window where it seems that pinball was banned in L.A., Chicago, and New York. Uh, and then the, the ban was rescinded like the, in the mid-70s. And I know that also in Oakland, it was banned until, what, 2014? <laughs> yes, very recently. It yep, still, very recently. It, it's still illegal to play pinball in New Jersey on a Sunday. Oh, good Lord. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll, I'll come over to Alameda on Sunday when I want to play pinball and I'll stay out of New Jersey. Yep. What happened to pinball machines? I mean, they, they, when I was a kid, I mean, I'm a kid from the 70s, and that's what we played um, every time we went to an arcade. And then it seems like video games came around like Pong, um, and pinball machines just kind of disappeared. Is that kind of what happened to pinball machines? Yeah, pinball, again, during the heyday was really the late early 30s through about the early 70s, 72 to be precise. That's when Atari created Pong. And up until then, you could put quarter after quarter after quarter into the pinball machines to get good and enough to get win a high score and get replays. Um, mm. But when the video games were introduced, what the operators noticed was that all the kids were shoving quarter after quarter after quarter into the video games and ignoring the pinball machines. And mm. so the pinball machines were about four feet long and about two feet wide. They took up a lot more room than video games. And what a lot of operators did was they just took their pinball machines and dumped them on the flatbed truck and took them to the dump and just threw them away. Wow. And it kind of almost died in the, the early 80s when Ms. Pac-Man or Pac-Man came out. It took in six mm -hmm. billion dollars worth of quarters in 1982. That was wow. more, more money than the, all the casinos in Vegas combined. I'm sure I contributed to that. <laughs> what is the difference between video games and pinball games? I mean, I grew up on both. 
Well, on the, on the technology side of things, it's really all about pattern recognition for video games. With pinball, everything is completely random. It's chaotic. You don't know where the ball is going. Every game is different. The sociological differences are when you're playing video games, it's a very private sort of endeavor. It's solo. It's self-isolating. Whereas pinball, it's a very social and open activity. Uh, lend itself to trash talking. Hey, great shot, or oh, you suck, or whatever it happens to be. On an emotional and psychological level, video games are always about either killing something or avoiding being killed. Even the innocuous ones like Pac-Man or Donkey Kong that had a gorilla that was throwing root beer barrels at you that you try to avoid. Uh, whereas in pinball, uh, if you look at all the back glasses and all the play fields, you will never see anyone being killed. It's always about fun. The theme is either happiness or love. Whereas I think on an emotional and psychological level, video games can be very damaging. A couple of quick things I wanted to bring up just about the pinball machines themselves. First thing, the artwork. There's a series of games you have in the arcade that are look like they're from the 50s, I believe, with extraordinary artwork. So was there a particular theme that was associated with the artwork on these machines, Larry? I think the target audience uh, for pinball players uh, that the industry was aiming at were 15 to 25-year-old males. And so the common themes were either card themes or sports or boxing or horse racing, things that were popular from the 40s through the 60s in particular. And as you look at these, you'd see the artwork on, not only on the play fields and the back classes, but on the cabinets. They really depict what people were wearing at the time and what the morals were the time, were the things that were going on, especially in the 60s. For example, a lot of the themes were space and science themed, the Friendship 7 or Space Mission and Space Odyssey. So they're, they're really a slice of pop culture, as it were. What is on the horizon for the Pacific Pinball Museum? Well, one of our goals is really to be uh, the Smithsonian, as it were, of pinball. Uh, imagine, if you will, a building, the 25 to maybe 30,000 square feet, a gift shop, a restaurant, an oral history section, a display of 250 to maybe 300 games, a restoration classroom, and then multiple rooms with games from various eras so people could see how they evolved at the time. That's really our ultimate goal. It's a lofty goal, but I like it. I want to thank you for joining us tonight, Larry. If you'd like to try your hand at pinball or learn a little bit of history and science along the way, make your way down to 1510 Webster Street in downtown Alameda and have a good time. Thanks again, Larry. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, that's State of the Bay this week. We want to thank all of our guests and listeners this evening for being part of the conversation. For links to resources mentioned in the show and more information about this and other State of the Bay shows, visit the State of the Bay page on KALW.org. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you heard tonight, let us know. You can email us anytime at stateofthebay at KALW.org. Join us next Monday when we'll get an update on why traffic deaths in San Francisco are still so high despite a plan to lower them. Tonight's show was produced by Wendy Holcomb and Jillian Emblad. It was engineered by David Kwan, and D Minor was our board operator. I'm Ethan Elkind. Good night, and thanks for listening.